This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back from summer vacation tomorrow. Speaking of the end of summer vacation, students whose parents have signed them up for in-person learning return to the classroom for a new school year a week from tomorrow. There is a lot of worrying out there among parents and grandparents with under 12s in their families since these youngsters are not yet eligible for COVID vaccination and could be exposed to the very contagious Delta variant. How concerned should we be about the spread of Delta in schools and how it will manifest in children? Two experts are joining us to discuss this important issue and will provide answers for us. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, as well as epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Thank you to you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jane. Always great to chat with both of you. Uh, Dr. Iris, you sent me a note to say you've been getting a lot of questions from parents about their potential exposure to COVID-19 when kids return to school. This sounds like it's a big concern right now. Well, absolutely. Kids have had an uptick in cases. And this isn't, this is largely because they haven't been vaccinated. You know, we've heard it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And that has a lot of truth to it. If you take a look at the number of people who are fully vaccinated who actually come down with COVID-19 in Canada, you're talking less than 1%. Some 90% of people have not been vaccinated at all who are getting COVID-19. So this is a serious concern. Plus, you add to it, the Delta is more than twice as infectious. It's more than twice as contagious. And what do we have? We have all these children... 12 and under, who are not vaccinated at all, returning to schools. Dr. Sly, what do we know about the way the Delta variant manifests itself in children? Dr. Sly, are you there? I think we might have lost. Did we lose him? Okay, then we'll stick with Dr. Iris for now and get Dr. Sly back. Uh, do you know, uh, Dr. Iris, the way the Delta manifests itself in children? Well, the, the, this is it. We're not shorter if Delta makes children any sicker than other variants have. What we believe is the majority of kids with Delta have either no symptoms or mild ones, like a cough, runny nose, sore throat, fever, or diarrhea. Of course, the common cold is going to be by far the most common cause of symptoms like that. So how do you tell? How do you know if it's a common cold or if it's COVID? Sad news here. The only way we know is by testing. You have to test. So kids with cold symptoms will still need to get tested and stay at home until their test results show that it's not COVID-19. But understand, like if you take a look at the, the population under 19, what percent of the hospitalizations do they form? Less than 2%. Mm-hmm. So these, they're not going to get terribly sick from it, but contagious they are. I want to hear from parents and grandparents. If you have children 11 and under in your family uh, who are heading back for in-person learning, what you're feeling about that, uh, how your child is feeling about this, because they've been dealing with COVID as much as we have, and it manifests in their minds uh, probably much the same way, but without context and life experience to help them. Uh, the numbers to call, 416 360 0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Sly, did we get you back there? We seem to be having trouble with his line. Uh, so, Zeev, just give me the thumbs up when we're ready to go. Dr. Sly. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, while we were getting you back there, uh, Dr. Iris was talking to us about the way Delta manifests itself in children. Could you add to that? Yeah, what we can look at is uh, country is a little bit ahead of us in terms of the school year. Uh, Florida went back to school. I think first day was August the tenth, 
Uh, and they're already seeing an increase in uh, incidents and also, uh, believe it or not, hospitalization among children down there. So they're about a month ahead of us. So we need to keep an eye on what's happening in a place like that. But in terms of uh, severe forms of the disease, um, are we seeing any of that in the 11 unders? I suppose if they've been hospitalized, that would be considered severe. Yes, it, it, exactly. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not uh, zero, of course. But I mean, it, it is down there, and it's uh, it's increasing. The figures, I guess, are still being gathered. And I was just looking this morning, looking at the health department in Florida. They're a little bit worried about it. It's a majority of children that age aren't going to be suffering more than sniffles and a cough and cold. But we don't want to see uh, any uh, cases of serious illness among children that age, and we are seeing it apparently. Oh, now, the you, big issue yes. in Florida, mm-hmm. of course, is that children are not getting vaccinated. Even those over 12 are not getting vaccinated. And so what we're seeing is the unvaccinated kids, we have a huge number of unvaccinated kids, and of course, a small percentage of them are in fact going to have severe disease. And they are filling the hospitals. That's what's going on. So who's like, which are the kids who are winding up in hospital here? The very few who are not vaccinated. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The take-home message for everybody is, if you can get a vaccine, get a vaccine. Now, what are we going to do with the kids under 12? The answer is not vaccination because it doesn't exist. It's vaccination with ongoing mitigation. The mitigation matters a lot. And again, it's the same old song. We've sung it lots of times before. It's the hand hygiene. It's, it's of course, what I, what I coin air hygiene. Air hygiene matters. You know, keeping the windows open, the doors open, making sure that we've got fans that are not blowing in people's faces, air conditioner units that are directed away from people, because this becomes a medicine. And, of course, masking. Uh, You know, I'm wondering how prepared we are in the schools. Uh, I've had a number of experts on saying that this is a watered-down version of the policies that are in place uh, for this September versus last September. And last September, nobody was vaccinated. So there are concerns that you have uh, children, especially in high schools, 500 children in a cafeteria, you have extracurriculars resuming, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Dr. Sly, have we we set ourselves up, or should I say, has you know the Ford government and those who advise them has have have we been set up for failure from the beginning? Jane, we're going into essentially an, an unknown area since the beginning of the pandemic a year and a half ago. We've never really had this uh, back to school in a large number of children, children who are particularly vulnerable to acquire the infection, even though they may not be particularly vulnerable to suffer from it to the same degree as, as their parents were. But yes, we're into unknown territory. So everything is, nothing since the beginning has been 100%. Uh, whether it's screening methods, testing methods, masking, distancing, they're all been less than 100%. So the way we've found we go around this is to layer on these various, uh, these various precautions and steps and measures. If you layer on enough, you get a pretty good protection. Unfortunately, in this last few weeks, I see a general principle that we're almost at the end of this thing. We can relax now. We can take off the mask, and nothing could be further than the truth. Israel, for example, with a population of only 9 million, uh, is, and with daily figures down to almost two digits, is now up to about 11,000 a day. Now, they were very highly vaccinated. So what's gone wrong there? People are, we think maybe the vaccine is losing some of its effectiveness. We need to look at that closely. We also need to look at how soon people began to relax their, their precautions. What I did notice, Dr. Sly, this week is that Israel is now uh, embarking on a booster shot for those 12 and over. They were doing 60 plus. Now it's 12 plus. Um, and and that, sort, that seems to be the case where they were out in front. Maybe the effectiveness of the vaccine is not as long as we think. Well, that's uh, being looked at very closely. I was looking at some of the research results just uh, about a week ago, and it, I think there's been some uh, uh, conclusions drawn that were perhaps a little bit erroneous. For example, they were comparing the people who uh, were longest vaccinated, and if you go back to when they were vaccinated, who were being vaccinated, but the very old people in old term, uh, long-term care homes, who, of course, had underlying medical conditions that would would uh, would, would 
bias against them anyway for long-term survival. So we need to look very closely at the results. But yes, vaccines are one of them. Uh, whether it's a, a relaxing of, of the precautions more recently since then, I don't know. Maybe it's a resurgence of a different kind of uh, variant we have there. We, we need to look at all these little dark corners. Uh, Dr. Iris, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I mean, we have to get the vaccine, the first shot of vaccine to those 11 and under. And uh, when I had Dr. Peter Uni on last week, he suggested that that would be coming toward the end of this year. Uh, in the meantime, uh, those of us who got our double shots earlier uh, will be at some point advised to get boosters. So we've got a double dynamic happening here come this fall. I think we cannot put all of our eggs into one basket. What we know right now is that individuals who are fully vaccinated are highly unlikely to get disease. And that's important to keep in mind. So when we talk about a loss of immunity, you're talking about 10% over six months, something like that. So understand, you got two doses of Pfizer, you're sitting at 88% reduction when it comes to mild to moderate infections. So we got spoiled. You know, before it was like 95% with the original variants. You got two doses of AstraZeneca, you still got a 77% reduction. The vaccinations shine. They are outstanding and remain outstanding at preventing severe disease. They remain outstanding at preventing hospitalization and death. You know, and that has not changed. What's changed here is that breakthrough infections are a little more possible. But how often are they happening? If you look at the Canadian landscape right now, as I mentioned, fully vaccinated make up less than 1% of all cases in Canada. And and check the work because that's right up there on the Canada InfoBase website. You know, so it, it is, they are highly, highly effective. So I do not believe that booster shots for everyone is ready for prime time. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. So who, who, who qualifies? You know, people with severe immunosuppression. And I'm talking severe. I'm not talking about you got thyroid disease. That, forget that. We're talking about solid organ transplant. We're talking about patients with active blood cancers who are on active chemotherapy. So patients with severe HIV that has not been treated. These are the kind of individuals who would qualify for a, for a booster shot right now. And I think that's very well thought out. That's according to World Health Organization guidelines. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby and joining me today, Dr. Iris Gorafinkel, family physician, founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. I want to hear from you, the parents and grandparents in the Zoomer Radio audience. How comfortable or uncomfortable are you with children in your life going back to in-person learning next Thursday, a week from tomorrow? How are you feeling about that? Are you feeling reassured by what you're hearing from the doctors that there is a very low chance of spread among the vaccinated, so the 12 plus? But how are you feeling about your youngsters, be they grandkids or, or your children, about returning to class? You may have no other choice but to send them back to class because you may be called back to work and you don't have anybody who can look after them. And of course, the costs associated uh, with having somebody at home while your child does virtual learning. It's one thing to say I would prefer to have my child at home. It's another thing to have a, a practical remedy for that uh, solution. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Sly, how concerned should parents and grandparents of the 11 unders be about sending them back? I mean, everything that both you and Dr. Iris are saying and other experts is that the the chance of these individuals, these youngsters, getting the Delta variant and having a severe form of it, the chances are very low. But that's only one small component in the, in the, in the web of transmission here. The school is really a, a, like a petri dish. It, or it, it's a model of what's going on in the rest of the community. And the kids themselves may not, in fact, uh, let's hope the majority don't actually suffer seriously, but they're going back and it could well be that that they may transmit it to the grandfather and grandmother and so on in the school. That's, that's one, one, one big thing that we need to be really careful about. 
The other thing is that we need to be aware that the schools and the politicians that advise the schools are doing the right thing to the extreme extent possible. In other words, uh, we would want to see on a list, and it varies across Canada. I don't know why it should vary to some degree, great degree. For example, cohorting is important. Vaccination for staff. There should be no question at all that the staff in a school need to be properly vaccinated as a, as a starting point. Uh, we need to see a good mask, mask using here. It's not much good just simply saying, well, wear the mask when you're moving around the corridor, but when you're in the classroom for, for two hours or three hours, you can take the mask off. And that's, uh, we need to look very closely at that kind of policy where it's been uh, suggested. Uh, testing. We haven't used testing in this country to anything like the degree that we should have done right from the very beginning. We, you and I have spoken, I think, about the was it, 7 million tests that the government uh, ordered and has been sitting in a warehouse or something for months now. We should be seeing strategic uh, rapid testing as a, in all institutions, not just schools. Dr. Iris, uh, your thoughts, uh, your reply to that question about um, sending little ones off to school and the off chance that they could get severe forms of the Delta variant. I I think the key messaging is that if a child has any symptoms at all, they need to stay at home. They need to get tested. Yes, the majority are going to be the common cold because that's what's so, 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 so much more common. But ultimately, the only way we know is by testing. But what about Who's transmitting the most disease? You know, so researchers in Ontario actually published an article in The Lancet, no less, that looked at over 6,000 households in Ontario. And this is where a child had been the first household member to get infected. Now, to be fair, the study was done when Alpha had been the main variant. But what's fascinating is that it's not whom we thought. We used to say, oh, it's the older kids. Wrong. It's the kids between the ages zero and four years of age. And why do you think that is? Because we're cuddling them and holding them in their discomfort as they cough, sneeze, laugh, sing in our face for a long period of time. So once we're talking about what are practical measures that we can take, well, minimizing that would be one of them if you're a grandparent. No, toddlers aren't wearing masks at home. They're not socially isolating, and they're certainly not covering their mouths. And what's interesting is that even kids between four and eight, they were almost as likely as younger kids to transmit COVID-19, almost as likely. Mm -hmm. You know, the older kids were actually a little less likely. So that turns what we thought on its head. Our Zoomer radio listeners want to get in on this conversation as well. Let's go to Cindy in Niagara. Cindy, go ahead. Hi there. I just want to say that both my grandkids are going back into class. They are 9 and 11, and I'm terrified, quite frankly, because I work in a long-term care setting, and I know what goes on when it comes to cleaning. At first, everybody's diligent, diligent, diligent. After a couple of weeks, it gets tiring doing the same old thing. I'm afraid we're going to get lax. And tell me, Cindy, what are you most worried about with your 9- and 11-year-old grandkids going back to in-person learning? I just, I'm I'm scared they're going to end up getting COVID Mm -hmm. and being really sick, hospitalized. I mean, who knows? We don't know. Is everybody in their life a double vaccinated, like back at home? All of the adults who are allowed around them are, yes. Uh, Dr. Sly, how can you allay Cindy's fears and concerns? Ah. Uh, it depends which school board the, uh, the, the kids are in. If it's you know, there's a number of school boards in your listening area here, and they, they seem to be slightly different. Um, I think that we need to. It would be good for parents to to be reassured by the school. Ask those questions that we're talking about today. Uh, ask about whether masking is, uh, is still used for singing, for example, in the school. Some schools say, well, you can take your mask off for singing. And we've got a lot, a lot of exa- evidence to suggest that that's one of the super spreader events is when masks come off and a lot of people are breathing heavily, singing, shouting, yelling, whatever it is they're doing. Uh, air is filled with aerosol at that point. Uh, uh, ask whether they're doing 
doing the writing all the way down the list of, uh, of staff, staff vaccinated, uh, is cohorting going to be part of this group? In other words, cohorting won't really protect the individual, but it stops it spreading throughout the whole school if one class keeps to itself. What about uh, school busing? Are masks going to be required on school busing? Uh, washing stations, uh, hand sand stations, that kind of thing. Ask whether they're doing the right thing. All right. Cindy, does that help? A little bit of guidance there. (laughs) Really good advice. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Rachel in Brampton. Rachel, you're on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Great show again. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, My son is going back to school. He's 19, and he's also a special need. And I'm like uh, immunocompromised, like I have rheumatoid arthritis. I'm a bit worried, although he's vaccinated, fully vaccinated. And uh, the teachers, the school board assured me that everybody's vaccinated and, and other, the teachers. But I'm worried, like, we should I get the third shot? Uh, you know, that's my, my dilemma, I'm, although I'm vaccinated with Moderna. All right. I'm going to put that question to Dr. Iris. She deals with patients every day. What would you say to Rachel, Iris? Not just yet, Rachel. Keep your ear to the ground. Thank you for the question because rheumatoid arthritis is a concerning thing, but you should check with the the specific medications you're on. Okay. So every rheumatoid arthritis patient is a little bit different, and some are on very aggressive therapy. Okay. And so if you are on aggressive therapy, so by the CDC definition, prednisone more than 20 milligrams a day, you know, yeah. so but there are other drugs too. So I would say this is an individual decision. The vast okay. majority of patients with rheumatoid arthritis would not need a booster shot. But I don't know okay. your situation personally. Oh well, I'm thinking metrotraxet. Yeah, that's uh, not one of the medications currently being advised in in Ontario. Okay. But as I say, you should speak to your specialist. Okay, great. Thank you, know you very much. Thank, Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Helen in Guelph. Helen, you have a question? Yes. Uh, I have two grandchildren that have allergies. They sniff and sneeze and do everything all morning, and their father's the same way. And I'm wondering, when they go to school, are they going to be um, considered that perhaps they have COVID because they're sniffing and sneezing? Well, interestingly, uh, Dr. Sly, you can speak to this, or Dr. Iris, uh, they took runny nose and runny noses and sniffling off the list of screening symptoms for COVID-19 for schools this week. Yeah, yes, and that's that because they found that most of the tests, almost all of those tests were negative. However, with the Delta variant, it is still not quite clear if children with runny noses aren't on that symptom list. So that data was based largely on alpha. We don't have great, great data on delta to direct that just yet. I'm I'm a little concerned about that. I personally think if there's been a change in how a child is, you know, if they develop something new, they should, in fact, get tested because delta, we've seen it. It can be very humbling. So, so Tim, um, in, in Helen's case, uh, there probably won't be an issue where runny noses have been taken off the list. And, and since the, the kids have allergies, they likely are not showing symptoms of COVID. This is an example where uh, people can get their own rapid test, and I'm all for that. Uh, you get yourself a few rapid tests. If that does happen, you can quickly do it, get the result in 15 to 20 minutes, and then you'll know for sure. Is that good, Helen? Is that helpful? No, it's not good. I mean, these kids are doing this every day. I mean, they Mm -hmm. can't have a test every day, I assume. Well, they are going to be sending home tests from the schools, and they are talking about the experts, uh, Dr. Iris, testing your kids regularly. Uh, I'll share with you, Helen. Keep in mind that there is a whole number of kids who have it, and it's totally asymptomatic. Right. And it represents a serious problem. Exactly. You know, so... What's going to happen is, you know, fortunately, if your grandchildren are vaccinated and the people around them are vaccinated, then that's a, a major, a major thing. Ultimately, every single public health mitigation that we have will only be as successful as the buy-in of the people around it. Because right. public health can make whatever thing they want. So my advice would be get involved. I think what Dr. Sly was suggesting makes a tremendous amount of sense. You want to see it work? then you get involved and you make sure that it works. And I'm talking about on a personal level, because ultimately that is what's going to be determining how successful all these measures are. It's the combo pack 
vaccination plus ongoing mitigation. Right. Well, they're not vaccinated because they're under the age limit. Right. So. Yeah. And that's and that's why we're doing this segment. Helen, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Uh, Final words, uh, Dr. Sly, as we we're eight days away from going back to the classroom. Oh, my goodness. Final One final word only. <laughs> no, goodness. no, you can have a few final words. No, okay. <laughs> no I, I think, I think the, the lessons we're learning, if we look around the world, is that we do not take this uh, by any means uh, lightly. Uh, we've been lucky so far that the variants so far simply mean that they've transmitted more effectively. The next variants that come along may be more pathogenic, or they may evade the antibodies, and that'll be going back to almost the square one. This means that we need to start vaccinating the rest of the world as soon as possible, because that's mm-hmm. where the variants come from. Dr. Iris. I would suggest that keep your ear to the ground on when vaccinations will become available for children 5 to 11 years old. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is recommending an additional 3,000 kids get, you know, into those trials. So let's just keep our ear to the ground and hope we have a vaccination soon. But the world, definitely, the low-income countries need to get vaccinated, and that's a high priority for the world's health. Doctors, thank you both. Appreciate your time, as always. Thank you, Jane. Many thanks. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is a family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. It's Jane for Libby. And coming up next here on Fight Back, the riding of Toronto Danforth is among the hotly contested in the federal election. The liberal incumbent joins us next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. One of the tight races in the federal election campaign is the riding of Toronto Danforth, once represented by the late Canadian NDP icon Jack Layton. Currently, it is held by Liberal MP Julie DeBruzen, who is running for re-election. Last week, we spoke with her main opponent, the NDP's Claire Haxel. This week, Julie is joining us for some equal time. Julie, welcome to Fight Back. Thank you for having me. Tell us about yourself, Julie, and how you got into politics. Yeah, you know, it's funny because it's not the usual path in the sense that it was really through my my choice to stay home and, and raise my family and to get very involved with local community groups that I started getting involved in politics. So I had practiced law for many years and then uh, When I had my two daughters, I chose to stay home to raise them. And when I was in the community 24-7, I started getting involved with our local food banks, our farmers market, um, with local park groups to try to protect our green spaces. And then ultimately what got me more involved in politics was the fight to keep some of our local school pools open um, that were threatening to be closed by the city. And it became clear to me with all that work we really need the federal government to come back in and, and step up to support our city. So uh, not what you would necessarily expect as a usual trajectory, but uh, that was mine. So a true community activist. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the foundation for a lot of the work that I continue to do is by working with people who are doing all of that hard community work, because they have their ear to the ground and and know what the needs are here in our community. So, Julie, why did you choose uh, to join the Liberal Party of Canada and ultimately become a member of Parliament? Um, Because there was a commitment. You know, in 2015, uh, when I looked at what the choices were that were out there, I I saw that uh, our city had been starved from having support on public transit, on on housing, on all of those important supports that we needed. I saw growing income inequality, and I, I wanted to get involved with a party that was going to take that on. And there was a very stark change. And also, when you look at climate action, we had a, we had a government in 2015 that didn't believe that climate change was a reality. So when I looked at the Liberal Party platform on on raising uh, children out of poverty, all of those pieces, taking action on climate change, investing in our cities, that that was the message and the work that I wanted to do. 
So what are you most proud of uh, during your time on Parliament Hill so far? Um, there are a few. I'd say, actually, going back to the child poverty piece, the change to the Canada Child Benefit, which has raised you know over 400,000 children out of poverty, it has been an incredible uh, game changer for people here in the community and across our country. So that's something that I'm really proud to have been a part of. But personally, I've also worked a lot with our arts community in, in supporting and reinvesting in, in, in our cultural industries, which is a huge employer right here in the city. So that's been something that I've been quite proud to, to champion as I go through. And, and action on climate change, you know, putting a price on carbon pollution, um, you know, legislating net zero emissions by 2050, uh, protecting urban green spaces and reinvesting in Toronto's and ravines. Like that's the first time that we're seeing those types of investments where we, we just recently committed $20 million to Toronto's ravines specifically. Those are all things that, that are helping to make our city better. I'm speaking with Julie DeBruzen. She is the Liberal MP, the incumbent in the riding of Toronto Danforth. Uh, that was quite something for you to take uh, the riding from the New Democrats. Uh, Toronto Danforth has been a long-held NDP riding. Uh, what do you think resonated with voters last time? And why should residents of Toronto Danforth re-elect you this time? Um, this the important thing is always to make sure that I am working with community members and amplifying what, what they want. And, and, you know, between elections, I knock on doors. Obviously, during this election, I'm knocking on doors all the time. I just came in from knocking on doors to do this interview. But between elections as well, I try and make sure that I'm available. COVID changed things a little bit on how you do that. But but to, to be able to amplify what people in the community want and and. Uh, you know, an example in COVID is working with our local small businesses to make sure that they had the support that they needed because our main streets are so important to our community um, and making sure that I work with grassroots community groups. You know, one of my, you know, we just released our platform today. Something I'm really excited about is a commitment to the National School Food Program. I worked on food policy. I talked about my work with food banks and farmers markets. Uh, we had a national food policy that we put in place in 2019. And in this platform, there's a commitment to actually implement the National School Food Program across our country. That, that's the kind of thing that people in communities see a need for. I hear it from teachers all the time. And it is amazing to, to be able to kind of keep pushing forward what I hear at the community level and, and getting to put it into action. Julie, what do you say uh, to the residents whose doors you knock on who say we didn't need this election? Uh, Justin Trudeau called this election for his own personal gain uh, to gain a majority, uh, which so far does not like look like it's going to happen. What do you say to those residents who are concerned that an election was called at uh, what many believe is an inopportune time? There are really important decisions for, for our community to make and our country to make about how we want to go forward. And you know, lots has changed since 2019 with the onset of the pandemic. So when in 2019, when we ran this election, we didn't realize the seismic changes that were going to happen right across the country. And this is a chance for Canadians to weigh in on what, what they would like to see. That's important because there are big decisions that have to be made right now about things like investing in the, the child care program across our country, on, on, on how we want to move forward, make sure that climate change is at the center of, of the different programs that we put forward uh, in rebuilding. All of those are things that, you know, without clear mandate become harder to do. So I think it's an important moment, a pivotal moment for our country. And just on a personal note, uh, before I let you go, and thank you for your time today, um, in terms of uh, your advancement within the Liberal Party, having an opportunity to have a bigger voice, you've been a backbencher for two years. Uh, is there any room for personal growth for you to have a, a bigger impact on the Liberal Party of Canada and on Justin Trudeau's decision making if you were to win this time? Um, so two things. I, I was parliamentary secretary of the Minister of Canadian Heritage for the past two years. Um, and, and so that was a real opportunity to weigh in on the support for, for our arts community. And, you know, here in Toronto, for example, our live music venues needed extra supports to get through uh, the pandemic. They're not traditionally 
uh, recipients of support through Heritage, but they're, you know, met with them, listened to them and heard them and was able to amplify that to create the program they needed. That's just one example. Uh, and, and you see it with our continued commitment to the arts. So I definitely was able to work on that and making sure that web giants are going to contribute to our art system, um, to our arts uh, and our broadcasting system. So that, that's work that I was able to do. But always, I, I have seen the impact of, of my work for greater gun control, which is something that our community asked for in, in many ways. Um, the National Urban Parks Program, when I talk about my support and you know, how I've worked for uh, green spaces and parks, that's a program that's within our federal piece. The National School Food Program and the food policy that we developed was also due to a lot of the hard work that came from our community. Work on animal welfare issues, like uh, ending the captivity of whales and dolphins. Those were things that people in community raised, and I was able to amplify so, so time and again, I have seen impact. And, and I've mentioned also for small businesses through the pandemic and, and individuals who were raising the type of support they needed. Um, so my voice has been heard as a member of the government party. Uh, I've had different ways of being able to raise it, like I said, as parliamentary secretary, but, but always just as a member of the government party, uh, I've, I've been loud on making sure that we always need to push further, faster, and, and to keep doing the hard work that we've committed to do. Julie, we thank you for your time. It was nice to meet you and know a little bit more about you. Thank you. I really appreciate the time that you've given me. Julie DeBruzen is the incumbent Liberal MP for the riding of Toronto Danforth. We had her main opponent on last week, a candidate for the NDP, Claire Haxel. It's Jane for Libby. And coming up next, what do you do if you're 65 plus and need an eye appointment with an optometrist? Now that the optometrists have withdrawn OHIP covered patients, we will provide you with a contingency plan next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from her summer vacation tomorrow. Well, you've likely heard on Zoomer Radio News that as of today, Ontario optometrists have withdrawn their services for OHIP-covered patients 65 and older and 19 and under. They've been asking the governing Ford PCs for months to increase the reimbursement of the fee for these patients from $45 to $80. To give you some perspective, $45 is only $5 more than what optometrists were reimbursed by the Ontario government back in 1989, which is 32 years ago. Talks have broken down between representatives of the Ontario Association of Optometrists and the governing Ford PCs, but not before Health Minister Christine Elliott revealed that the government has offered $39 million in back pay and an 8.4% increase to the service rebate. We will be speaking with Dr. Ritesh Patel here in a couple of minutes. Uh, he is an optometrist and has offered to give us his personal perspective as well as the perspective of the Ontario Optometrists Association and some guidance to patients, those 65 and over and those 19 and under. Dr. Patel, so nice to speak with you again. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is an unfortunate situation you find yourself in. Oh, man, we couldn't agree with you more. I mean, on our end uh, of the spectrum, we just want to continue the care that we've been able to provide for Ontarians for uh, many years, many decades. Um, and unfortunately, uh, this is kind of what 30 years of neglect uh, from the government kind of ends up being, where it's um, unfortunately just not sustainable uh, for the future of Ontarians and the future of, uh, of optometrists. So, Somehow finding a way for us to, you know, continue the care that we have been fortunate enough to be able to provide is uh, the solution that we're looking for. Now, obviously, you want to get back to the table, get back to bargaining, not you personally, but your representatives. Is there any indication that that might happen sooner rather than later? Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've been at the table uh, and that's kind of the unfortunate thing where, uh, you know, again, for 30 years, we've pretty much been at that table 
uh, open and willing and, and able to, to wanting to speak to the government, uh, obviously from from uh, various parties. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, in this scenario where uh, they've they've walked away, um, you know, we're patiently waiting at that table uh, and open and willing to be able to talk to them as well. Um, as for timelines, it's, uh, you know, of course, difficult to be able to, to predict those, but uh, we're hoping uh, for the sake of Ontarians that the, the government comes to their senses and uh, it's over before, uh, before it has to continue on for a lengthy period of time. So what are your collective thoughts on Minister Elliott's uh, response? $39 million in back pay and an 8.4% increase to the service rebate. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's a lovely spin on some of the numbers, right? Because um, you know, it can look like a very large number, the 39 million. Um I think what what stands out to to me and and hopefully for Ontarians as well is uh, you know, the fact that if they're if they're trying to provide this uh number as back pay, I, it pretty much tells out the the story we've been saying where, you know, they've been under we've been underfunded for a very long time and and here's what it is. Um you know, it's the equivalent of putting a uh, using a water bottle to put out a fire, uh, and just not realistic. Now, unfortunately, uh, you know, if we look back on the last ten years for what the government is saying that this is back pay for, uh, optometrists have performed nearly thirty four million OHIP exams. Um, so the equivalent of this is essentially a dollar per exam of back pay for the last ten years. Ah. The unfortunate thing is that it does nothing for uh, to actually allow for the sustainability for the future. So they're saying that okay, well, we'll back pay you this uh, this uh, you know dollar per exam, uh, and the eight percent still leaves us sixty percent below uh, the next lowest province, which is Manitoba, in terms of funding. So if you compare us uh, to Manitoba, we're currently at least seventy percent below them, and they're the next lowest. They're the the lowest uh, besides us in the in the in the country, and you have governments such as in Alberta who are essentially uh, nearly triple the amount of funding that they've provided for eye care versus what Ontario is. So, you know, the eight percent is uh, is you know unfortunately you know uh, minimal in terms of really a drop in the bucket when it compares to what the gap is, which is nearly seventy percent. Dr. Patel, your critics would say that going on strike effectively for people 65 and over and 19 and under uh, is is an extraordinary decision. It's, it's leaving a lot of people without eye care. Do you think there's going to be backlash from the government for withdrawing services covered by OHIP? Yeah, you know, quite frankly, I, I, I would agree with the, with the statement uh, because we feel the same way. You know, it's it's not uh, a decision that uh, we've taken lightly ourselves, um, and uh, it is a and you know the care of Ontarians eye care uh, from uh, optometrists is also a duty that we we like to perform. So the unfortunate thing would be is at some point, uh, if it's been thirty years of of neglect, um, you know, I I think the onus at this point falls on the government, not on our on our end. Uh, especially when you just kind of look at the facts of uh, the fact that, you know, the cost of delivering, quite frankly, anything in, in the country, let alone the province, let alone the world, is, has gone up. So, you know, all we're asking for is um, is some sort of sustainability factor, because the deeper and deeper uh, we continue with this, or the more we continue with this, unfortunately, the deeper that, that goes. Um, you know, then they've run tons of, fa- of, of figures to try and understand, well, what, is that, what does that look like? So, if we look back to 1989, um, which is the last time you know there's been any sort of uh, significant conversation on this, uh, if you factor in inflation and so forth, our our reimbursement or remuneration at that point uh, was $39, and uh, the cost of delivering has gone up, um, you know, uh, nearly double. So you know the fact is, it's uh, the cost of delivering eye care in, in in Ontario is nearly $75 to $80 ignoring anything else. This is just straight uh, providing care. Uh, ignore the fact that you do want to invest in equipment to better care for, for your patients or, you know, overhead uh, of, uh, of any sort of team uh, that you do have on to be able to care for your patients, nursing, so forth. So, you know, the fact is it, we didn't take that decision lightly, but unfortunately the opposite of, um, of not being able to care for a patient 
with the lack of sustainability from the government was something that had there had to be a, a line drawn in the sand there. Now, for people who are 20 to 64 and not covered for eye services by OHIP, and I know from my own experience, I think the cost is around $95 for a visit every couple of years. Did you all consider raising the rate for people 20 to 64 so that people wouldn't lose this, the service, uh, those over 65 and those 19 and under? Well, you know, of course, everyone's practice uh, is, you know, their private decision. So ultimately, each practice um, is, you know, can ultimately make whatever decision they want to to do for them uh, in terms of their care. But the realistic thing would be is that that unfortunately still doesn't change the fact that the government um, should should be the ones funding this. This is a promise that they've made to Ontarians in terms of being able to provide care. Uh, for the ages of under under 19 and over 65, uh, as well as conditions that fall into what's been covered. So, you know, my personal opinion has uh, is more geared along the lines of uh, not necessarily putting that outlay out on those other patients versus the government standing behind what they've what they've promised to Ontarians and be able to provide that that same care. But it should not come at the expense of. of uh, of other you know, patients within a, a private clinic to have to do that. But what happens now for these patients who are 65 plus and 19 and under? They effectively don't have eye care for the foreseeable future. Uh, what uh, are you assisting in, in getting them uh, referred elsewhere in some way? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we, we very um, well understand that, uh, you know, the consequences of this um, in terms of making sure that our patients get the care. You know, for, for myself, I've been providing or practicing for nearly 15 years. So certainly, you know, these patients are not just patients. They're, they're people I know. They're friends of mine. They are people that we want to take care of. So we certainly don't want to turn our backs. On them, that's nearly uh, that's that's certainly not the scenario here. So, you know, each each practice has been very much guided uh, to ensure that their patients are getting care, whether that's through the emergency uh, room or through their family doctor, if somehow that's that's an option. Um, but ultimately, we are we are guiding patients to ensure that they're getting the care that they need, especially in emergency scenarios. And as individual providers, um, are you individually allowed to decide your policy for your practice, or do you have to? Uh, is there solidarity with the OAO on this? The OAO is very, very solid. Um, you know, we've got over ninety-six percent of our members. Um, uh, on board with this. So, uh, you know, of course, at the end of the day, everyone can make their own private decisions. But um, I can tell you that we are strong and we are standing behind this. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all believe in a just cause um, so that we can create that sustainability uh, for the future of Ontarians and, and for the future of eye care. So, Dr. Um, Patel, there are optometrists out there, not very many, it sounds like, but there are optometrists who are still offering eye care service to 65 plus and 19 under? You know, as a as a black and white, I, I, you know, you can always assume there's going to be, you know, a few here or there, but quite frankly, I haven't heard of any. <laughs> so, when we put our um, when we put our our information out and we had a collective uh, discussion on this, I mean ninety ninety six percent is pretty telling, um, and um, and you know it, it's strong. So we're confident with uh, with that. And you know at the end of the day, each practitioner will have the ability to to make a judgment call. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we certainly don't want there to be any sort of vision threatening issues and, and turning our patients away in a in a very dire scenario. But we certainly fully understand uh, the importance of the solidarity and and uh, the 96 percent, quite frankly, speaks for itself. And for those patients who do fall into those two age groups and say to you, well, listen, I'll pay you the full expense just so I can have my appointment. You cannot take uh, money from customers for OHIP covered services, correct? So this is the incredible, the other incredible thing uh, and unfortunate thing about Ontario is it's the only province uh, that doesn't allow that you're correct. It doesn't allow that. So let me give an example. Um, You know, you mentioned the $95. So let's assume that, uh, you know, OHIP covers half and, um, and that person also then has private private uh, insurance that can, quite frankly, cover the other half, if not the entire exam. Uh, Ontario is the only province besides Manitoba, which I mentioned is the next lowest, that doesn't allow us to uh, fill in that gap through private insurance. 
Whereas provinces like BC uh, or Alberta allow you to, you know, allow you to get the care uh, or the remuneration from the government, in this case, OHIP. Uh, and then any sort of balanced amount of billing that's allowed can be can be occurred in from the private insurance. What Ontario is saying is that, you know what, we're going to reimburse you a very nominal amount, again, 70% less than the, the next lowest one in, in the next lowest province in the country. But on top of that, we're not going to let private insurance uh, put the bill of the other balance, which uh, which quite frankly makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have private insurance that's able to pay for this, and you have your insured, um, you know, a client or patient that's that's essentially paying into this, but yet can't even utilize it. This seems like a win for the insurance company and uh, nothing for the patient. So it's quite unfortunate. These are just one of the other uh, gaps in terms of how Ontario views this. Uh, versus every other province in the country. So it is quite unfortunate. Doctor, just less than a minute to go here, but I want to ask you, do you think ultimately uh, these services for the 65 plus and the under 19 um, might end up being delisted from OHIP? Your guess would be as good as mine, but the way I look at it is the government does have a uh, have the responsibility of taking care of these patients. Um, I think the most important thing to um, to understand for especially for our older patients over the age of 65 is is vision threatening conditions like macular degeneration or glaucoma are in many cases preventable. Uh, and if it's managed and caught early, which is what we do every single day, um, it'll ultimately save the government and the province millions upon tens of millions of dollars. And there's multiple white papers that prove that. So what we'd like to be able to see is the government step up to what they've promised Ontarians um, and what they and on, what Ontarians deserve, than to to see those uh, delisted. But at the end of the day, we'll we'll see how those discussions uh, unfold. And all we're looking for is something where the government is willing to come to the table and uh, understands the future and the sustainability of eye care in Ontario. So we just ask uh, for your listeners to go to saveeyecare.ca um, and let your MPP know there's over, already over 170,000 signatures there. So they're hearing. They're hearing it from us, but more importantly, they're hearing it from you. So uh, I very much appreciate the time to be able to convey the message from the OAO um, so that we're able to uh, make sure we get the facts straight. Dr. Patel, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Nice to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Optometrist Dr. Ritesh Patel. Jane for Libby, who returns tomorrow. She will have lots of reaction, including yours, to the vaccine certificate announcement this afternoon by Premier Ford. Speaking of which, let's get to the news. Here's Bob Comsick. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.